Hello, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast today is John Fowler. John is the co-founder and CEO of International Intrigue, which is a newsletter about geopolitics. He's also a former Australian diplomat and international lawyer. Um, If you want to check out um, his publication, it's internationalintrigue.io. I highly recommend it. It has some great insights and looking forward for for John to come back on the show um, in the future. It was great to get an Australian perspective about what is going on in the world. Uh, We recorded this on Wednesday, July 27th. Um, It's been a beautiful day. Well, I shouldn't say beautiful. It's been a really hot and muggy day here in New Orleans, but I believe this will be publishing in about two and a half weeks time. So there was nothing particularly time sensitive we talked about here, but if anything seems out of date, um, that's why it's about two weeks old. Um, Otherwise, listeners, uh, the same stuff always applies. If you have a moment, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast. If you are listening to this podcast on the Purge Pod feed, just a reminder, this is one of your last chances to switch over to the Cognitive Dissidence feed um, starting next month. Um, we will only be doing short um, short trailers, I guess, of episodes to try and get you over to Cognitive Dissidence. You can write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments if you want to learn more about cognitive investments itself, the strategies we use to manage money, or you just want to suggest um, a podcast guest or talk to me about anything that is on your mind. I read everything that comes in, (laughs) sometimes to my detriment. So without further ado, let's get to this excellent episode with John. Uh, Take care, do good work to steal the phrase from Garrison Keillor. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, listeners, here's hoping this works. Uh, John and I have had difficulties. <laughs> Obviously, the Chinese are preventing us from bringing an Australian guest onto the podcast to talk about Australia time related to John. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're everywhere. You can, you, can, you can never be too sure. And, and this is an, a podcast of utmost importance, so I can understand why they're interested. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're going to be drinking very important beers and talking about very important things while we're here. Yeah, um, cheers. Cheers to that. John, before we start... Um, I was, you know, I was doing some research before we got on the podcast, and I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce your new prime minister's name. Um, and it doesn't seem like Australian media is quite clear on how to pronounce his name. So can you tell us how to pronounce his name and then maybe segue into what is important from a from a foreign policy perspective about his election? Yeah, I mean, I think most people know that in Australia, if you get sort of close enough to people's names, that's just about good enough. So um, I think I think uh, officially it's Albanese. Uh, at least that's how we say it, Anthony Albanese. Um, uh, yeah, so he, I mean, I guess he's been prime minister for, what, about almost two months now, I guess. Um, the election was in a bit over two months. It was in, it was in May. So um, I think I think the biggest thing is for, for listeners who don't really sort of, you know, get into the weeds on Australian politics, for, for which I forgive them entirely, um, he is a sort of centre-left prime minister coming in after, you know, a decade of, of centre-right government um, 
So I think the biggest the biggest thing is that after when you change government after ten years, there's a there's a, a chance for a reset for all the relationships that maybe haven't gone as well as you'd like. Uh, so I think I think just the, the pure nature of him being new um, has kind of is kind of the biggest news in our foreign policy outlook. Uh, and you know our our biggest relationships tend to be America, where nothing really changes, um, China and the Pacific, and and the latter two are, are the, the places I think that are the biggest difference makers. Yeah, well, let's let's dive right into that because I know you have special insight on this too. So one of the articles you sent over to me actually as we were prepping for this podcast was um, some quotes from China's foreign minister. Um, and I'm just going to read them because they're so poetic. The Chinese side is willing to take the pulse, recalibrate and set sail again. So, um, and I, I've been thinking about Australia-China relations a lot recently because um, obviously after after Prime Minister Abe, or for, I should say former Japanese Prime Minister Abe's tragic assassination in Japan, I was doing a lot of thinking and and reading about the history of the Quad. Um, and Australia, yeah. Australia was an early country to say, we're not interested in the Quad. We would like to improve our relations with China. So what um, do you think that the Albanese government will be interested in setting sail again with the Chinese, or is anything going to change there? It's... That's the big question, right? Um, I think so. I mean, if if you rewind a little bit, uh, I I was uh, a dip- an Australian diplomat in China from 2015 to 2019, uh, and when I left Australia to go there, um, I think the the relationship was, you know, it was pretty good. I think there were some early warning signs. At least with hindsight, there were some early warning signs. But when I went there, it was it was really, you know, our our economies. We sell you all the stuff we dig up. You give us lots of cash, and and long may it be so. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, in the first couple of years I was there, you sort of started to see Xi Jinping, you know, consolidate power. You know, the 2017 Party Congress. I think a lot of people started to go, uh oh, you know. Um, things started to sort of look like they might not be as rosy as we'd thought. And then since then, I would say, um, you know, it's been a pretty pretty bad relationship and, and it's at its lowest. I think the problem for a reset is that it's now been bad for like four or four years. And that's probably just enough time for businesses to start to understand that oh maybe this isn't so great start to make some decisions that decouple themselves from china so i would i mean back to your original question i would bet that it not a lot will change i think australia will approach it with an open mind ish sort of say okay well we need to see china make some real changes of course the chinese communist party won't change anything um uh so i mean maybe that's maybe that's my bias uh, having spent time there but um, I'll put it this way. I'm not optimistic that much will change in the relationship. Why don't we push on that for a second? Would you say that Xi Jinping's election and all of the various policies that she engaged in, does that constitute change in the Chinese Communist Party? Or do you think he's just kind of... So in, in terms of change, do you mean, I mean, he certainly changed things from how it was previously. Um, is, that, is that what you kind of mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I mean... It's so hard to know what actually goes on, obviously, behind the scenes in, in the Communist Party. It was one of the key lessons I learned spending time there is anyone who says they know what's going on is 
totally full of shit and you should immediately disregard them because I think every good China analyst goes like, well, you know what, it could be this, it could be that, and, you know, prepare for the worst. Well, uh, just, just on that, I've noticed a thing where, where people are doing this thing where to hedge their China analysis, they, they say something very definitive and then they follow it up with, but the party congress is coming up and we can't say anything. And then after the party congress is, we will know exactly what's happening in China. And I, I don't know if you've noticed that as well. It makes me want to light myself on fire. <laughs> yeah exactly the same uh it's always that way and you know th- when we get closer there'll be you know almost like fantasy sports leagues of who's getting elevated to the to the standing committee and who's out and what that means and look honestly it just the, the only thing you can be sure about is that i think in my opinion is that even though it presents itself as a unified kind of you know, all, all people singing from the same hymn book kind of kind of political environment, you can be sure that they're having the same fights that, you know, America, the UK are having. They're just doing it behind closed doors. So that, that's about the only thing I'm sure about when it comes to China. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I forgot what your original question was, but cha- change in terms of Xi Jinping. I mean, he's changed things, but I don't think until he dies, um, my take, again, it's my take, would be that, this is how China views the world and they view it in a very, they view Australia particularly as America's lapdog and to the extent that they feel there's enough space to pry us away from the US orbit or at least put a bit of a wedge there, they'll be nice to us. Um, and to the, you know, other than that, they'll, the relationship is locked into that kind of, print, I wouldn't say adversarial, but because I think things at the working level, you know, you know, drug enforcement, these kinds of really working level bureaucratic government to government contacts, they still work. So it's not adversarial per se. It's not Soviet Union, Cold War 2.0 kind of crap that everyone says, but it is, it is at the high level politically not going to be particularly good. Yeah. Uh, competitive, I think is the word that at least yeah. in the US has been thrown around a lot. Um, right. From this, this may be a, a silly question, but maybe we can start here. From an Australian perspective, um, who started it? So who is responsible for the deterioration in China-Australia relations? I'm sure that the Chinese would say, this is the Australian's fault for not respecting us, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm, I'm wondering if Australia has a... Do you have any sense that Australia did anything wrong or misunderstood China? Or, or is it really just China's pushing out and you guys are reacting? Yeah, it's... It's another great question, and I, funnily enough, I, I haven't really thought about that. I, you know, I sort of know what what we think, and what we think is certainly that it's the latter that China kind of. I mean, if we start with facts, there is no doubt that China's foreign policy has become a lot more um, adversarial, a lot more bolshy. You know, the whole wolf warrior diplomat thing, where they kind of take to Twitter and <laughs> very Trumpy, Trumpy kind of vibe in abusing people. So there's there's no there's no doubt that that's happened. Um, but, you know, I think there's probably a lot of things that we would look back on and say we didn't help. I mean, I know, again, during the the prime ministership of uh, Malcolm Turnbull, so that would have been 2000 and don't quote me on these dates, 2016, 17, 18, that period. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of really stupid comments from our politicians. I mean, this is the one thing about a free and open society, right? <laughs> you can't you can't stop people from being idiots and unfortunately a lot of them seem to get elected um so you know we had we had a minister for pacific for the pacific at the time make you know really 
pretty derogatory comments about the Pacific and about China and, and these kinds of things. And the Chinese Communist Party is, if they're good at anything, it's good at feeling aggrieved. So they immediately pick that stuff up and and sort of play the victim. Um, so I, I think I think my answer would be that we were naive going into it and we thought that, you know, I think like everyone thought that globalization and, and free and open trade and economics would be a, a tide that um, lifts all boats and that China would be, you know, China wouldn't go against its own economic interests, so they wouldn't want to sour the relationship. So we were a bit naive in thinking that. Um, and then I think we came head face to face with sort of Xi Jinping's new Chinese dream uh, foreign policy. We didn't help ourselves by saying stupid things, um, but I kind I kind of feel like this was inevitable. Really, mm-hmm. if we if I mean the thing is. If it wasn't inevitable if we'd said, okay, yep, we're on China's side and we're going to separate ourselves from America, um, a little bit like New Zealand's done, right? They, they sort of have sat in the middle of China and America uh, much sort of more, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say they've been better about it, but, you know, they're a smaller country and, and they're less Americanized than Australia is. So if we'd done that, maybe it would be better. But given that our politics is very American, um, I think it was pretty inevitable. All right, we're going to bookmark New Zealand because I want to come back to exactly that point that you brought up. But before we leave the the current topic, um, I guess the way to phrase this question is, do you think that China has gotten anything out of its treatment of Australia? Do you think it has achieved any of its objectives? And if 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 not, like what were its objectives? Because it and, and the the follow on part of this question is, which side was hurt more in the deterioration of China Australian relations? Because obviously, it hurts the Australian economy to not be able to sell reliably. You're still selling things to China, but it's not as reliable. You're at the tip of a hat. You know something can really change, and the, the Chinese have used that muscle quite a few times now. But at the same time, I mean China. At this time last year, we were talking about coal shortages and electricity brownouts and factories in Western China. One of the things you guys export is coal. So do you feel like maybe it's gotten to the point where both sides just realize that they got nothing out of the competition and maybe there can be that reset that the Chinese are talking about? Or do you think that China has some objective that is being served by their relationship with Australia and they're going to push forward until they get that objective? Yeah, there's a few things there. I think, I think, um, I think you're right in characterizing it as a bit of a lose lose co- uh, sort of situation that we've arrived in, and you know that's the nature of competition, isn't it? If you view if you view things as zero sum, then they all that compared to when you think of things as collaborative, they are always by definition a Pareto inefficiency, if you get my point. So if you're going from things working for both sides, and then you say, okay, well, we want to take you know, China wants to beat us or we want to beat them, you you materially go backwards overall. So I think that's exactly right, the way you characterize it. The, the difference I would say is that I don't know that China would ever see it as, the, as, you know, them needing Australia or, you know, I don't think they see coal shortages as um, in the same way that Australia would. We would see that as like a failure of policy and a failure of government to provide the people what they need. I think China looks at that as kind of a little hiccup in a, broader plan, you know, the medicine that needs to be taken for um, pushing back against what they think is, you know, American dominance of Asia. So hmm. I, I know, like, yes, you're right. Like, I think materially, if they were a democracy, you'd be like, listen, the Chinese people are worse off than than they were when we were cooperating because of X, Y, Z, you know, they, the, the coal, as you say, but, you know, not just that. They've had 
they've had um, a lot of cooperation between us in in the region kind of stall, which I think probably isn't to their benefit. But that's not how the Communist Party would see it, I don't think. I think they would sort of see it as, uh, I guess, um, clarifying the fight against America to get for Asians kind of, uh, I guess, not supremacy, but influence. Mm-hmm. Um, then I then I think, I think, look, I think if it wasn't Xi Jinping and I think if it wasn't, if, if he had, if he hadn't been able to, if, there, if China wasn't on this path of national rejuvenation of, you know, the nationalistic myth, then I think, yeah, what you say is right. There could be a change in paramount leader at the end of this year um they might come on board and go what are we doing picking fights with australia a you don't really matter to us so there's no point in you know picking a real fight b there's some marginal gains to be made here so let's let's get back there um but i don't think that's likely um yeah i, I don't know it's a, it's a it's a very good question but i think what it's achieved in australia is really opened our eyes to the nature of the next century um, you know, when I first joined the Foreign Service, I remember that all the talk was about how Australia could be the food bowl of Asia and all our policies were aimed at exporting rice and agri, you know, um, uh, all the things that are difficult to grow in in, in tropical climates. Uh, so like fruits and obviously seafood and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that that kind of policy almost just assumes that everything's going to be peachy in the region. Um, and I think that's the biggest change. Now we're like, okay, well, we need to get our, our minerals going elsewhere or at least diversified because, I mean, I think it was something like 40% of the jobs in Australia were, were directly related to the Chinese economy. It was something like that, um, which is an absurd amount of geopolitical risk with a country that you have almost nothing in common with. Mm. Um, so I think that's changed. Hmm. Um, so what's what's next though? So if somebody was go- if a young whippersnapper was going into the foreign service today, would they be talking about how Australia is going to be the food bowl of sub-Saharan Africa? Or I mean, like what 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 is the change in orientation? Because you can't. I mean, China's so big. I guess unless you're going to pivot to India, which has problems of its own. I mean, there's no one actor that's going to be able to fill all of that dependence. This is the problem, right? I think Australian foreign policy, and this is me speaking for myself. Obviously, I think Australian foreign policy is grappling deeply with that question. Um, I think one of the great shames of Australian politics over the last two decades is that we missed, you know, it's not too late, but we largely missed the boat to be a real leader in renewables, Um, you know, a highly educated population, abundant space and, uh, you know, sun, wind, waves, all that kind of stuff. We really had a chance to be if not, you know, the, the biggest manufacturer by, you know, gross output, at least the technological leader of developing these kinds of technologies that will power the next hundred years, that boat hasn't sailed, but it, you know, it, it, it's certainly, we're behind the eight ball on it. I think that's what, I think that's one area that people think that Australia could kind of push forward and we could, you know, that has a nice synergy with the Pacific who are really focused on climate change. Um, is that a, a market that's big enough to, to be interesting, I, I don't know, but it, could, it there are nice tie-ins with foreign policy on that. Um, and then I think if I if I was being more cynical, I think that's probably why you've seen over the last couple of years a closeness between the US and Australia is I think that we've kind of gone, oh, oh shit, our one thing that we did was sell stuff to China and have good independent relationships with China. Based on that, that's gone away. Uh-oh, we need to run back to daddy. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's an idea. I mean, don't worry. I think the United States is even further behind you on the eight ball when it comes to renewables. But we can um, 
you know, we can talk about that another time. Um, this is a good segue though into the Pacific itself. And you raised New Zealand first. So maybe let's start with New Zealand and then work our way out to the rest of the region. Um, I My impression was, and I've been trying to get a, a New Zealand friend who's a professor and does stuff on foreign policy and security on the podcast for a couple months now, and he, we keep missing each other. So you know who you are. You're, you're coming on the show soon, and I'm sure you'll want to rebut everything that the that John is about <laughs> yeah. to say just now. But but my impression... Now I have to watch what I say, right? <laughs> absolutely not. Have another drink of your beer. Um, uh, the... Um, my impression, though, of New Zealand is that they also kind of got religion on China, if you will. I mean, I felt like I think you were exactly right that they they definitely wanted to chart a more independent path. And they've always wanted to chart a more independent path. I mean, technically, the security relationship between the U.S. and New Zealand is still defunct because of disagreements about nuclear weapons going back to the 80s that probably nobody except the five New Zealanders who listen to this podcast can can recite. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I, I thought that they had kind of realized, uh, like, we this China thing's probably not going to work. Am I was I being too optimistic? Do you think they're they're still trying to play both sides there? Yeah, I my sense, and I'm I'm certainly not an expert on New Zealand politics, but my sense is that they're kind of where Australia might have been in 2016, 17. Like, there are some warning signs, and people, you know, I mean, they've got a bunch of really really excellent professors who are, you know, China professors. I think Anne-Marie Brady is from, I think she's from some university, maybe Christchurch, I'm not sure. But she's been, a, you know, an outspoken critic of China for, for a long time. So they've got, they've got, um, is it Anne-Marie Brady? I don't know. Anyway, um, but they, they've, got, they've got a lot of academics and thinkers who are alert to the issue, right, who've studied China for a long time, who they, they see how China treats the rest of the world and they're, they're sounding the alarm, but I think just like Australia in 2016, the signs are there, but it hasn't been absorbed amongst their political elite and amongst their businesses. You know, Fonterra, the the dairy company in New Zealand, that still sells most of its product to China and baby formula and all that kind of stuff is hugely important for, for the New Zealand agricultural industry, which is also hugely important for their economy. So I don't know that they've seen religion. I think the, the, there are warning signs, and I think they are naturally more suspicious of America than we are through the nuclear stuff, but through, what, three or four decades of kind of from from the nuclear uh, stuff back in when, whenever that was, the late 80s, I think it was, when when you guys couldn't, you know, dock your, dock your boats or whatever it was um, through to now. I think there's just generally been a bit more scepticism towards the US than there is in Australia. Um, but... Do I, I mean, you know what they, and, and I mean, no disrespect to New Zealand here, but they, they, are, they may be small enough and unimportant enough that they can walk the line, right? Like they can sort of, they can sort of say, listen, we're not going to pick sides and no one's going to force them to. Um, I don't think Australia can do that. And it's not just necessarily the size of the population or the economy. It's, it's where we sit in the world. You know, our whole Northern coast is like a big block like a big sort of perimeter to, to Asia and, and we've got an American base in Darwin and the boat sailed for us to walk that line, I think, but may, maybe not for New Zealand. I don't know. What about, I mean, forget quote unquote daddy for a second. I mean, if we take the United <laughs> States out of the equation, um, like what, what is the relationship between Australia and New Zealand on a bilateral level 
well, just on a foreign policy basis in general, but then also in relations to China, is it is it separate from from the U.S.? Is there some is there some way that Australia and New Zealand can? I mean, I know in the Pacific, you guys probably work more together and have more established kind of priorities. But is there anything that Australia Australia can do to sort of say, hey, like we were where you where you were like four or five years ago? They're obviously trying to divide us. Like, like I'm just wondering if that dynamic is there, or if or if the or if your experience is that New Zealand looks at the Australians and is like, all right, like. Thank you. If we want to talk to the Americans, we'll go to the Americans. We won't work through Canberra. I think both. I think I think one. Those conversations are certainly happening in in Wellington and Canberra between ambassadors and, and ministers. Like there's Australia and New Zealand is like Canada and the US, right? Like separate and have and and diverge in certain places and and are no doubt independent. We're not sort of they're not a client state or anything like that. There's a joke that we always say that they're the the eighth state of Australia because, you know, everyone everyone who, who wants a decent job comes to Australia and all that kind of stuff. But but they are, I would say, you know, we work closely together because naturally we're very similar peoples, right? Um, you know, very similar histories of of how how the countries were settled after after colonialism and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a there's a lot of natural synergies there, but they remain independent, and I, I'm, so, I'm sure those conversations are happening where we're trying to tell them, "Hey, look, what you know, China's doing this," and, and they watch what's happening. Um, and I don't think they're they're stupid, um, but I, I, I'm certain that they make a very clear point of maintaining those independent relationships. They they would never work through Canberra on an access basis. They'll work with Canberra to achieve goals that are better when we can collaborate. But there's there's no way they'd ever outsource any of their foreign policy to us in the way that maybe, you know, um, a smaller European country has outsourced it to the EU or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, let's dive in specifically then to the South Pacific and all these island states in general that, I mean, I think if listeners know the names of all of these South Pacific states, it's only because you're a World War II nerd or you had a grandpa <laughs> right. like me that was serving, you know, in Guadalcanal or, or wherever else. Um, so exactly. I guess to start with, I mean, before we sort of get into what the how Australia and and what China recently did and all these other things, could you just tell the listeners? I mean, and by the way, like about five to ten percent of our listeners are Australian, so I don't know who they are out there, so they'll at least know this already. But for the for the ninety five or ninety percent of our other listeners, tell them why they should give a fuck about what's going on in the South Pacific from a strategic level. Try like I mean, I'll, I'll try and put a link to a map on the podcast description for this one because this is one. I think you really do need a map of the maritime definitely um, uh, environment to really understand it. But let's try with words to just explain very briefly what the strategic implications are of the South Pacific before we get into the political moves. Yeah, I think the first thing to note is that you probably have to explain that to most Australians as well, because even though we're <laughs> you know right in the region, I think there's a there's a lot of naivete around um, where things are and why we should care. So, I mean. The, the simple answer for that, I mean, is, well, there's no simple answer, but I think there's three big reasons why we should care about it. Um, obviously, it's China. Obviously, it's the US. But it's it's the kind of, you know, if I think I think one of the, I think it was the Solomon Islands prime minister the other day said, we're scared about great power competition because we don't want to be the grass that's get, that gets trampled by the elephants. So that, that's one big reason that this area is so important going forward now because they are the people who are going to be in the middle of any, you know, un, God forbid war, but even just geopolitical competition. Um, more specifically, 
fisheries, huge resources of fisheries that China wants access to um, and often breaks international laws around. So there's increasing interest in protecting the fisheries and the, and the fish stocks uh, around the Pacific Islands. Um, there's underwater uh, communications cables that run right through the middle of the Pacific um, from Asia and Australia to the US that, you know, if China was able to establish a presence there, brings into question communications, all these those kinds of security issues. And, and the third one that's obvious is that if, if China is able to establish a military presence there, um, how does that change the military dynamics of the Pacific and Asia? Uh, because all of a sudden, China can project, uh, project its power just a lot further from its shores. It can intercept um, US Navy ships in the middle of the Pacific now. Um, it can easily access Australia and probably spy much more easily on Australia. Um, and it also gives military planners a whole new thing to think about if if, uh, if Taiwan goes the way that people predict. So, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the short answer is that it is just geographically right in the middle of everything. And so I guess it was in May that the Chinese, this was a rare moment where I feel like Chinese PR got things wrong because it, it seemed like they announced that there was going to be this security economic communique with 10 of the Pacific Island states. <laughs> and foreign minister ran around and talked to them all and they were all like, eh, like we're not sure we want the communique. But I mean, it seems obvious that China is increasing. Um, well, I don't know what is increasing its influence mean. That's one of those phrases I make fun of other people for saying, cause it doesn't yeah. actually mean anything, but I mean, I like, what you mean. <laughs> it, it does seem like China is trying to build better relationships with those South Pacific nations. And the thing that's confusing to me is, I mean, even if you accept that they have things that China wants and the strategic position is important, it's really far away from China and it's much, much closer to Australia and New Zealand. So why was there even an opportunity here for China to do that? I would have thought that Australia and New Zealand would have worked together and, and would have had this wrapped up and made all of those states, um, not client states, but I would have thought that all their economies would have been more dependent on Australia and New Zealand, not looking towards Beijing. So what what went wrong from your perspective on that? Yeah, two, two things there that are, I think, super, super observant. Um, uh well, uh, let me take the second one first. I think you're exactly right, and it is an Australia-New Zealand dropping the ball kind of, and the US dropping the ball. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily dropping the ball in so far as they are economically dependent on Australia, New Zealand, the West for mostly their whole economies, right? Like Australian aid is is um, you know makes up a huge percentage of a lot of those countries' GDP, mm. um, and you know we've always been pretty good partners for security. I mean, when Honiara erupted into violence late last year, I think Australia had boots on the ground to help uh, the Prime Minister kind of get control of the situation within 24 hours, right? Like that went to Cabinet and then literally Australian Federal Police were on the ground within 24 hours. So we, we have been a pretty good partner. I think where we've dropped the ball is um, we've had a tendency to be very arrogant in the area um, to just assume what you just said, basically like, oh, you're really close to us. You're dependent on us pretty e like economically. So, you know, twill ever be thus. We don't really need to keep working. Um, and I think these kinds of, you know, Pacific cultures are, I mean, uh, the new prime minister, we talked at the start about Albanese. One of the things he was really, really careful to say when he did his Pacific or well, his Bali visit for the, 
was it Bali? I can't recall. Anyway, a recent visit, or it might have been the foreign minister who went out there, just respect. That's what they just kept hammering because I think there's a feeling in the Pacific that Australia's been a bit arrogant in that space. And of course, what's the easiest thing that, can, that China can replace when it comes to competing for geopolitical influence, if you want to use that shitty jargon term? And it's they can, re- they can replace economic dependence overnight because they'll just walk in and sign checks. So, if, if you go to Fiji and say, oh, we're very dependent on Australia and, and New Zealand aid, China goes, no, you're not. Here's a check. And, and that's done. So the, the work that really matters in places like that is, is the cultural, the, the, the friendship stuff, the, the kind of deeper stuff that China, A, couldn't replace quickly but can't replace because of its system. And I think maybe we were a bit negligent on that. Um, and I think to, to add to that, and I... I'm, I'm rambling on a bit, but I think the US has been almost criminally negligent in the area. I think that, you know, Asia more generally, but the Pacific has been a joke. I think the State Department largely outsourced the Western agenda in the Pacific to Australia. But, you know, I don't, I don't think the thing about the US is that everyone thinks the US deals with the US on its own terms. If the US outsources it to Australia, they go, very good, but we want to talk to the US ourselves and the US hasn't been in the region for 25 years, right? So that, that's, the, that's the second part of the question. I think the first part of the question about China's missteps around the, the um, Pacific Islands Forum, you know, I think they took a calculated risk to try and rush something through. If they'd managed to get that signed off, um, it would have been a foreign policy coup for the ages. Um, it's obviously a huge year in China with uh, the Party Congress in, in fall. So I think that was, and Wang Yi, the foreign minister who was the one doing all the tours out there, he, he is likely not to be, he's, I think he's almost certain to retire. Mm. So I, I, my take, and it's just my take, I haven't really seen it written anywhere else, which is a pretty good sign that it might be full of shit. But um, <laughs> I, my take is that he just kind of was like, I mean, what am I? What have I got to lose here? Like, people will be like, "Oh, it's a very embarrassing thing," but you know, whatever. Who cares? It didn't get up. It was a it was a shot across the bow of Australia in the US, and you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained is, is what I think they thought. Yeah, but don't worry. The United States is is opening embassies in Kiribati and Tonga, so all of this is going to be completely solved, and everything <laughs> is good from here on out. I, I will say, when I was reading um, the White House readout, um, and I think they gave this to Vice President Harris, although that also tells you what the White House thought about the the importance right. of this, even this year. Um, Correct. But I, I did notice in her statement, she said a couple of things. She said that they were going to bring the Peace Corps back to the South Pacific. Why wasn't it already there? She said they're right. going to reestablish a USAID um, mission there, which we actually, Lewis Luck um, came on this podcast a couple months ago. Uh, listeners, if you haven't checked out his book, please do. He's a former regional director for USAID and like sort of talked about the importance of USAID in the context of US soft power. The fact that it's it's not there, that they have to reestablish. I mean, that sort of stuff kind of blows my mind as well. But I thought I might also just ask, um, where does New Zealand fit in this part of the equation? Because I would think that at least on this particular issue, you guys would be on the exact same page and that Australia and New Zealand would be working together, even if you're maybe not on the same page as trust in the US or with China. Um, is, is New Zealand with you on the South Pacific or is, is there even sort of tension on that relationship? No, I think, I think we're pretty lockstep in that area. I mean, there's probably differences at the working level that I, I don't really understand or have a knowledge of, but I think we're pretty lockstep. Uh, and New Zealand obviously has 
huge interest in the Pacific. Uh, they've got a huge Polynesian and Melanesian population, and and they're much better at being in touch with that history of their culture than 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 we are. That's for sure. Um, and they have a history of being involved in the Pacific for you know for forever. So I think no, I think we're very we're lockstep on that. I think that they just by the the nature of their size, they can't do as much as Australia can can do. But yeah, I we, every time I see something happening in the Pacific, it is often a collaboration between Australian aid or New Zealand aid or the defense forces or, or whatever it is. So what do you think the South Pacific looks like in five years from a diplomatic perspective? Do you think that Australia and New Zealand will be able to overcome some of their missteps and be able to push back some of China's attempts to 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 push into the region, whether economically or politically? Um, or do you think that we're just watching the beginning of China doing this and that it's just going to be a lot more China and you're going to have to get a lot more concerned? I go back and forth depending on the day of the week. Um, <laughs> I really do. Uh, I think so I, I'm very skeptical that the US will do what they say and meaningfully re-engage. Um, I know Caroline Kennedy, the new Australian ambassador, as of like last week, her first trip is to the Solomon Islands with, um, I, think, I think she's a deputy assistant to secretary of state, Wendy Sherman. I can't remember her position, but she's pretty senior in, in the state department. They're going to the Sollies. Um, how I'd like to see how long that will last. I'm skeptical. Um, the, you know, I think the US fundamentally the US doesn't get the Pacific because it's all about climate change and fishing, and no one in DC gives a shit about those issues, right? Like it's it's all it's it's like oh well, I don't care. Let's talk about Middle Eastern oil and you know all that kind of stuff, or Ukraine. Um, two scenarios. One is that the new Australian government is successful in rebuilding the kind of trust that I think we've always had there. Um, and the Pacific Islanders are uh, open to it and they say, okay, well, the last, you know, five or so years of you being arrogant was a blip rather than a trend or rather than your true nature. Um, and we are willing to kind of rebuff China and you can still be a big part of the Pacific. That, that's one scenario. And I think that's probably the most likely one. I think, I think, our diplomacy is pretty good in the region. Um, we have a lot of experience there. We've made mistakes, but I think, I think, I think that's the most likely. By no means unlikely, though, is that the Pacific sees the Chinese um, push into the Pacific as legitimate. Um, I know from friends in government that uh, the Chinese are, are sending their best diplomats to the Pacific. I sort of offhand said, oh, you know, yeah, but Chinese diplomats are horrible. They walk into a place and they smash open doors and they yell at people in Chinese. Um, and that's certainly been true many, many times. But he he pushed back and said, yeah, I, I know what you mean, but, like, the reports that we see is that they're sending their best people there who speak English better than, you know, most people. And and so I think that it's a it's it's not a foregone conclusion that the Chinese couldn't make uh, real inroads culturally and sort of like, you know, people to people links, which is a, another one of those shitty terms, but you, you know what I mean by it. It's like you, where people feel like that China is legitimate, um, and a legitimate friend. Uh, so, I mean, those are the two outcomes. And, it, and if China is able to convince that, like you could see certainly the Solomon islands where their prime minister is a bit of a renegade, you could see them, you could see a Chinese port, or at least a port sharing arrangement where naval Chinese naval naval ships are allowed to restock and refuel um, in 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 Honiara, you could see that within a couple of years. That's the worst case scenario for Australia. Um, 
So if I had to have my guess, I think things are probably a bit of a stalemate there. There's a lot of money poured into the region to kind of build capacity. And, you know, that, those countries have agency too. I think that thing gets lost a lot. Like mm. these, they're not stupid. Um, the politicians are real good at, at, at pushing their own interest and their own interest now are to get the world to take climate change seriously, fishing rights seriously and development seriously. And, you know, if I had my bet, I'd say in five years, Australia, the US and a couple of other countries have poured a hell of a lot of money into the region and the politics are roughly the same as they are now. Hmm. Um, let's move a little further afield. Um, oh. It's We're recording on July 27th. This will come out in roughly two weeks or so. But um, maybe the big news, I feel like the biggest news in the, in the Indo-Pacific this week is... Um, Indonesia's president's visit to China and the, mm. in some ways, the strengthening ties between Indonesia and China. And I think in some ways, uh, I would actually argue that maybe the South Pacific even gets more press in the United States than Indonesia, which everybody seems to ignore, despite the fact that it's one of the most populous nations in the world. It sits astride some of the most strategic landscape in the world. And I know it's critical for Australia. So let's not commit the same mistake <laughs> as everybody else and talk about Indonesia for a second. What is your view of Indonesia from an Australian perspective? It's been it's it's I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's it's a it's a enduring mystery to me why the world ignores Indonesia. Um, I, I suspect it's just because they are geographically kind of in the middle of nowhere and they're not sort of you know white and anglicized. Um, but it's it's odd to me because as you say, there's 250 odd million people there. Um, and well, they're not quite in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Malacca is not that far away. I mean, they're right. Within, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're definitely not in the middle of nowhere, but I think people sort of view it that way, right? They yeah. sort of say the Atlantic, Europe, and maybe China now is, is the center of the world. And then Indonesia is kind of, oh, that's on the fringe. Um, no, I agree with you. Like geopolitically, I mean, uh, they sort of have half the China, South China Sea is, is all of their islands, plus, as you said, the Malacca Strait and Singapore and all, all of that. So, um, yeah, uh, your question was, how do Australians view Indonesia? And I think, I mean, I, I'm going to sound pretty down on Australia, I guess, in this podcast, which, you know, is, is the nature of, I think, being Australian is that you criticise your own country first. But um, it, I think, again, we just, we're just not great at engaging with people who aren't exactly like us um you know bahasa is one of the easiest languages to learn in the world i'm i'm informed i don't speak it but i'm, I'm told it's pretty easy right like when we were in the foreign service it's it's one of the it's one of the easier languages that you get taught um and yet barely any australians speak it and they're our neighbor so i don't know i think i think we just ignore them a bit um but with that said i think since the mid 2000 so 2005 six uh, we have really upped our game in in dealing with their government, and it started because we were really obsessed with turning back illegal um, refugees who were who were being people smuggled from from Indonesia to, to Australia. So that was kind of the impetus for us to kind of engage with Indonesia. Uh, and I think the upside of that has been that we have. I mean, I think it's one of our largest embassies. We send really great diplomats there. We have coordination across all the different areas of government that you can imagine. Uh, so I think we're getting there, but in po in popular culture in Australia, it's still it's still kind of not even a thing. Apart from Bali, of course. If you've ever been to Bali, you'll see a billion Australians getting pissed out of their brains on on cheap piss. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, all all of the uh, all of the five eyes like to export 
our problem children to different beaches of the world. Yeah, I think it's the Cancun of, of Southeast Pacific. <laughs> I guess so. Um, are you concerned about um, Chinese-Indonesian relations? Um, or do you think that Indonesia is large enough and pragmatic enough that it will chart a more independent course? I mean, China is a huge investor in Indonesia, but Indonesia, I mean, it's been bad if you're buying palm oil in the world right now. It's been bad for you. Um, it, Indonesia's protectionist policies. If you want mm. access to Indonesia's nickel and all the other things that they produce, they're protecting all of their minerals in a way that most countries aren't, and they've been ahead of the curve there. So I think there's some hope from my perspective that they're not going to be in anybody's camp except their own. Um, is that your view? Um, and maybe that's why Australia worries about it less, because you know that they're not in danger of teetering? Or do you worry when you have these things like the visit of Jokowi to to China when he's, you know, batting eyelashes at Putin and talking about Russia? I mean, do, do you worry that maybe they're they're swinging the other direction? No, I, th I think you've put your finger on it there is I think they are fiercely independent. Um, you know, I think something that you and I agree on is that the world is moving into a multipolar kind of future rather than, you know, these fairly lazy comparisons of the Soviet Union and the US. And Indonesia, I think, is sees itself very much as, you know, almost like in the same way that India might see itself or, 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 or Turkey, where they're these countries that can kind of not play both sides because that sounds cynical, but just relentlessly pursue their own interests um, and work with people where it, where it suits them. Um, and I think they've, they've been good at it. When it, come, when it comes, well, firstly, let me, the, the Jokowi visit to Beijing, I read as a little bit more G20 oriented than anything more substantive. I mean, I, I think it's a good thing for their bilateral relationship, but I see that as him kind of, you know, making sure that the G20 while they host it later this year is, is a success that everyone attends, you know, the first post COVID, that's what they'll say, you know, first post COVID meeting and let's get out of this all together. Um, so I see it more cause he's off to South Korea and Japan at the moment, I think. Um, and, you know, obviously he went to Russia. So I, I see that, I mean, it's not only that, but I see that as the major driver for those visits. I mean, I would put money on the fact that if they weren't hosting the G20, he probably wouldn't have made those visits, right? Mm. Um, and in terms of their relationship, I think the biggest sticking point uh, is is just the South China Sea stuff. I mean, Indo as I said, Indonesia claims at least a portion of that south, what is it, southeast corner of it that China says falls within their nine dash line. And Indonesians are fiercely, fiercely nationalistic. Um, you know, every election they have a general or a former military officer kind of promising to make Indonesia great again. So, like, that doesn't that doesn't bode well for them. And then you pile on top of the fact that, that they're, a, I think, are they the most populous Muslim country in the world? I think that's right. If not the yeah. most, then, yeah, that doesn't the most, play well with the communists. They're the most so. populous Muslim majority country in the world. Right. I, forget if, I forget if India technically has more Muslims than right. India. It's close. I'm not, I, I yeah. forget which it is. A, lo a lot of Muslims anyway. Um, and, you know, that that doesn't bode well for, for relationships with China because China is, you know, doesn't love, doesn't love Muslims. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, you heard it here first on the podcast, a lot of Muslims <laughs> in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just that kind of stuff that people tune in for, right? Breaking news. <laughs> um, we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, China, Indonesia, the South Pacific nations that have a lot of... Um, well, nations that suffered from colonialism and, you know, sort of struggled through that and have very different cultures and backgrounds and history and language than you and I do um, sitting in the Australian United States. Um, I thought we would turn now to France, 
who the United States and Australia also succeeded in pissing the crap out of in the context of everything that's going on in the Pacific. Um, so I don't know if listeners remember this. So why don't I just serve up the softball to you and ask them to, uh, and ask you to explain, first of all, what happened with AUKUS or whatever people want to call it. What a terror. Like we have the quad. We have AUKUS. We really uh, I, I still can't figure out what like a ministry of yeah, ministry of geopolitical branding to like make this stuff less shit, right? Like AUKUS and quad and trilateral, multilateral 1.5 channel. Like doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I'm still, listeners, I'm still waiting for somebody to give me some kind of abbreviation for the five eyes that doesn't sound completely pretentious and that I can actually <laughs> pronounce. Um, I'll, buy, I'll buy anybody a beer who comes up with it. But uh, tell us <laughs> tell us what happened with Australia and France and why the French got so mad at you. Yeah, well, so, I mean, for, for background, for anyone who's not aware, uh, AUKUS is the sort of US, UK, Australia, you know, it's a security kind of, agreement, I'll call it, uh, to provide Australia with nuclear technology for submarines. Um, you know, I think the very obvious aim of that is to give us the, the ability to kind of um, project naval power into the South China Sea and into the Taiwan Strait with nuclear um, submarines, which are obviously the, the way to do that. Uh, so, that, I mean, that that's a very controversial deal for lots of reasons. Nuclear non non I can never say that. Nuclear non proliferation. There we go. <laughs> um, that uh, and lots of other reasons. But the, the the one that pissed off France was that we had entered previously um, a deal to for for the French defense industry to build us a, a fleet of submarines by you know let's call it twenty thirty five that were conventionally powered. Or I'm not an expert on this. They were conventionally powered, but you know special in some other way. But they weren't nuclear powered because we don't have that technology um, ourselves. Uh, so we had a huge contract with the French, um, and then all of a sudden, our former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and, and and Biden all announced the AUKUS deal, and the French claimed, and I actually believe the French that we didn't tell them that that was coming, which you know is I can't having worked in government, I can't. I mean, I do know how it happens, but I can't believe this kind of stuff happens. I can't believe that it, it's sort of just these kinds of mistakes happen. Um, but, you know, the former prime minister was a was very, very powerful and, and you know, it was, a, it was a thing that he was he was pushing. So I, I imagine he, he pushed it through and, and didn't feel the need to deal with the diplomatic niceties. So, you know, the French got very upset. I think their Fran the French foreign minister said some pretty outrageous things, which, you know, in the in the in the history of kind of Australia-French relations, which are very good, right? Um, I think they were kind of reflective of how upset the French were, um, and, and and rightly so, I suppose. That said, I will, <laughs> I will say that the reaction in Australia was a bit like, yeah, well, you're making shit submarines, they're late, so deal with it. <laughs> so, you know, that's the typical Australian reaction. <laughs> are, are you concerned at all that... Um, French-Australian relations won't recover or that France will be working at cross-purposes in the Indo-Pacific? Or is, is that one of the reasons maybe nobody really cared to tell them? I think the latter. I think I think we'll be fine. Um, you know, the, the, the simple fact is most of our interactions with France come at the working level. Again, a lot of naval stuff in the Pacific and, and, and in Antarctic waters. It's, it's, I, I used to be a, a lawyer in, our, in the Australian government's sort of Antarctic division and we, were, we, we worked pretty closely with the French on, on, you know, patrols of illegal fishing in those waters and all that kind of stuff. But none of that depends on political 
um, relationships, right? It just goes ahead between the working level um, folks. So I don't see any long-term problem with the French um, relationship. I, I mean, I don't think it's a good thing. You, you don't want to do that kind of thing too often. Otherwise, you start to get a reputation as a, as a pretty awful partner and, and you know, other countries start to take notice. But I think as long as it's a one-off thing and the new prime minister, and I think he has been to France and, and sort of kissed and made up. So I think that's probably the end of it. I didn't know that about you in Antarctica, and it, it actually makes me think a little further afield, which I hadn't planned to ask you about this, but um, I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, in the United States, it's become, I won't say in vogue, but in certain circles, it's become um, sort of fashionable to start thinking about Latin America again, because for a long mm. time, the United States ignored Latin America. I would I would argue we're still ignoring Latin America in many ways, but you know, you're starting to see companies saying, oh, maybe we should think about relocating some supply chains to Latin America. From right. an investment perspective, Latin America is, I think, one of the most interesting places in the world. There's obviously a lot of water between Australia and South America, but I mean, countries like Chile or even Colombia or Mexico, those might be countries that Australia actually does have a lot of interest with in common. Do you do you feel any of that in Australia? Is there any is there any awareness of Latin America as an important, e either culturally in the discourse or at the political level, thinking about that as a priority, or is it just kind of off to the side and it hasn't gotten there yet? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think I think the answer to like the cultural kind of stuff is, is no. We don't really think about them. Um, we love to travel there. We think, you know, I think we have jet, like Australians are very positively disposed towards South America as a place, and I think, you know, any politician who said we should you know, improved ties there would have no problem convincing Australians that that would be a good idea. Um, but I think, yeah, as you said, there's a lot of water, right? Uh, and I think beyond, you know, all the stuff that makes countries come together, which is travel, trade, we don't do a hell of a lot with South America. I, I, I believe that we do a little bit of natural resources stuff. I'm, I'm probably, I'm getting a bit out of my depth here. I, 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 I'm plumbing the, the back of my memory, I think we have a relationship with Chile in, in certain areas of resources that's pretty well established, but it's certainly not big in the government to government level. Where where I have experience and where it is, where we have been working with, uh, you know, countries across South America for a long time is in Antarctica, which, you know, you mentioned it. Um, we meet, you know, every year and we have a long history of collaboration on, on Antarctic issues. So there's there's this kind of like, if you want to say like a little bit of like a hook in into what it could become, you know, if, if it works well in Antarctic multilateral bodies, there's no reason it couldn't work um, more broadly. But I don't think, for example, there's a sense like in America where, you know, you started the question with saying America has ignored Latin America. I don't think we think that about South America. I think we think it's not really our business, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I, I've done a lot of work on the Arctic, but I confess I've done next to no work on the Antarctic. What, what, are, what are geopolitical considerations that we should have in mind about the Antarctic? I mean, are, are the Chinese running around there? I mean, it, that seems a little far for them. It's, the Arctic seems so important because both Russia and China are there. They're making claims. They think they're going to be part of it. What, what is the geopolitics of the Antarctic, if, if there are any? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's very different to the Arctic because of the Antarctic Treaty, um, which was signed in the, well, again, don't quote me, late 50s, early 60s. But um, that that treaty has essentially meant that geopolitical competition in the Antarctic has, has really been, if you'll, God, if you'll permit me this pun, frozen. <laughs> um, Not much longer. So I'm, no, right. Exactly right. In, in both ways, because the, the treaty is due to kind of, 
run out in the in the 2040s, I think, or at least the bits of the treaty that prevent geopolitical competition. And that are that they've banned they've banned nuclear testing and nuclear development, and they've banned mining and any extractive kind of resources down there. So you have this kind of situation where no one has te- like technically no one has sovereignty. There's a lot of claims, but no one owns it. You can't get any minerals and you can't do any kind of stuff that you might want to do in a place that's a long way away from your home, i.e. test your nuclear weapons. So I think that Antarctic is a really interesting um, sort of test case for what geopolitical cooperation looks like because you mentioned China. Are they playing around in the Antarctic? You bet. And they're doing it basically because we let them. Um, they, they, all their scientists or a lot of their scientists go down through Hobart um, and we facilitate them um, onto the continent. We collaborate really closely with the Chinese Polar Institute. I, the name escapes me, but, um, yeah, we do a lot of work with them. Um, so, yeah, the, the the question is, the mi- I know the mining ban runs out in about 20, let's call it 2045, around then, um, and I think the geopolitical question of Antarctica is, is it going to be like musical chairs? You know, uh, everybody who's kind of building the capacity to be down there and around there, if that ban, as I think is likely, doesn't get renewed, mm-hmm. what does China look like when all of a sudden, uh, sorry, what does Antarctica look like all of a sudden when we look at all the different resources that are available down there for, you know, for extraction? I'm going to show my ignorance here. What, what resources are down there? I really haven't thought about it that much. Are, are there substantial so- mineral reserves there? Yeah, I think, yes, the answer to that is yes. And I think it's all the kinds of stuff that is, is I think it's rare earths. I think it's, I think it's everything really. I mean, it's a giant, a giant continent um, and it's deep sea stuff. And, and, you know, another thing, not just, not just minerals, it's, it's the fishing stocks are, are all protected um, and, and very rigorously enforced. So they, if they, if they become, you know, a free for all, which hopefully they won't, that would be huge. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing now is just those resources are not easily um, extracted, right? Because of, mm-hmm. you know, conditions, ice, um, all, all the normal kinds of things. But if, if you kind of look at what's going on in Antarctica now with everybody conducting science experiments and being very collaborative, a cynic might say, well, that's kind of developing the know-how for once the, the music starts, being able to kind of get up to speed very quickly and, and kind of take advantage of the continent. Now, the other side is like a lot of people I know in that space say it could well be an area where you know the great powers by 2040 or whatever are so consumed with their other stuff that we just go well you know what antarctic can wait another 50 years um because the 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 context of of antarctic of the antarctic treaty was that it was signed at a time when everyone was exhausted from fighting a war and then the korean war and the cold war had just started and the world basically said oh fuck we can't do another thing so let's just put that off and you know it's perfectly feasible that in 20 or 20 odd years that that dynamic will will come back into play huh. all right well you've given me some homework to do um before we <laughs> b- before we talk about international intrigue because i want to talk about that for a bit let's just end where we started which is taiwan and the episode that's gonna um, play on the one before yours is an interview with roger baker um who's uh, really the chief analyst at strat or the i should say the stratfor center for applied geopolitics is what they're calling it now um, and mm-hmm. we we talked a lot about Taiwan, and I wanted to talk to you about Taiwan from an Australian perspective. Um, specifically, I mean, you sort of alluded to this earlier. Um, you know, what do you think is going to happen in terms of China and Taiwan, and what is Aust- what what does Australia actually do 
um, if China does make a move for Taiwan. I, I personally don't think that's the most likely scenario. I think China's trying to do a Hong Kong 2.0 strategy to Taiwan. But if I'm wrong, and if China does make some sort of move, I mean, is Australia, and you mentioned this with the nuclear submarines, I mean, is Australia actually going to go to the defense of Taiwan? Is that something you think that Australia is, is, I mean, I know that we talk about protecting Taiwan, but I have a lot of cynicism about whether the United States would do that when the chips are down. Do you feel like that is a real national security imperative for Australia? Again, there's a lot of water between you and Taiwan. It's it's not like that. That is um, it's not it's it's not sort of an apparent interest just on the face of it. So I just wanted to throw Taiwan at you and hear a, a non-American, non-Chinese perspective because it's not often we get one. Yeah, um, I'll start with saying I don't think you're wrong in what China's trying to do in Taiwan. They don't they don't want to take it by force if they can possibly help it, but. I mean, the question is, the question isn't, oh, if they can't take it, if they can't sort of, you know, do a Hong Kong to it, do they leave it alone? The answer is no. I think, you know, it's it's an absolute red line imperative. So if America and the, the rest of the world makes Taiwan resilient enough in the sort of political societal sense such that it can't go the way of Hong Kong, I think war is inevitable. Um, mm. And you know that's a big if. I, I think I think there's a I think there's a pretty decent chance that China can do a Hong Kong. I think it won't be as clean. It'll be a lot more messy and take a lot longer. But I think that's probably the most likely scenario. But if we do get to a war, or at least China's preparing to take it by force, um, Australia's interests are very similar to America's, and and that's because of our our systems. Um, I think we've we we nailed our colours to the mast. A decade ago, or not quite a decade ago, when China first announced their nine dash line in the South China Sea, and we took part in, you know, the FONOPS, the the freedom of navigation operations um, alongside the UK and and, and US, um, we've had a long history of trying to say that international law applies to those waters, and you know, I'm sure our interests, I mean, our interests are the international rules based order can't be flouted so obviously. I mean, that's our interest in Ukraine too. You know, we've provided a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but by our standards, a lot of military assistance. We've given them a few vehicles, but, you know, that, that that's a big deal for us. We've given them vehicles not because Ukraine matters particularly to us, but because of that general sense of we benefit immensely from the way things are and would like things to stay the way they are. I think the same is true of Taiwan. Now, I don't think we've had a real conversation in australia about the question you asked which is okay it's pretty clear china's going to have a go what does australia actually do um and you know me saying that we haven't had a conversation shouldn't imply that we're going to have a conversation uh it's it's probably just as likely that we don't have the conversation it happens uh and we do whatever america does um particularly now that you've given us the nuclear technology for submarines, we can't turn around then and go like, "Oh, thanks for that." We're not going to use it in the in the in the exact scenario that you guys thought it would be is why you provided it. So I, I think I think really the the short answer to your question is our interest is generally what we see as sovereign nations, and you know, diplomatic bullshit aside, Australia views Taiwan as a as a separate country. Um, diplomatically, we don't. Diplomatically, we have a representative office in Taipei. We have we we do the whole one China policy, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think in the men, in the mentality of it, we view them as two separate places. Um, and our interest would be, you know, a, a big a big country shouldn't invade another one. Um, uh, 
when they don't want to be invaded. Yeah, but let, I mean, let's let me push on that a little bit, which is to say that mm. it's it's nice that the West is supplying weapons to Ukraine, and it is important to the Ukrainian war effort to get those weapons. The Ukrainian war effort probably collapses if they don't get those weapons. But nobody's done anything for Ukraine. There are no U.S. soldiers, Australian soldiers, European soldiers of any kind that are actually defending Ukraine. Um, and Russia, I mean. Uh, I don't. I don't expect that China will make the same types of military miscalculations that Russia will. I imagine that if China is pushed to that kind of end, that it will be a little better prepared than Russia was. Um, I mean, do, do you see a scenario in which there are Australians that are working with the Japanese and the and the Americans to actually defend Taiwan, or is this all sort of a deterrent mechanism to say, China, we really don't want you to do this. Like, we're going to do all sorts of things with the dollar and economic sanctions and make life really difficult for you if you do this. But you know, is it is it is it actual? Is is it is it that imperative for Australia? Do you think that you see Australian soldiers picking up arms to defend Taiwan if if the worst happens? It's so hard to say. It depends on so many things. It depends when it happens. Um, I, I think I, I'm of the view that it won't happen anytime soon. Um, you know, touch wood. Um, I can see a scenario where an argument is made for some sort of vague domino theory, some sort of vague, you know, oh, well, the Japanese marched their way down through through Asia in, in, in World War II and they were only really turned around at the edge of Papua New Guinea, next stop, Australia. So... Let's not let it get that fucking close. Um, if you'd be naive to think that China only wants Taiwan, and you know, I can imagine that argument. I, I don't agree with it. Don't get me wrong. I don't think China, certainly as we sit here now, has you know Japanese imperial ambitions from World War Two. But I can imagine if it's twenty thirty and we've seen Chinese influence grow and grow and grow and, and chafe and chafe and chafe that that argument is made. Um, you know, I. It's hard to, I mean, I don't like comparisons to Ukraine because it's so different, obviously. Um, but I, the, the, the comparison might be something like if Russia didn't have, and China does have nuclear weapons, but if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, do you think that EU countries would have provided troops to defend Ukraine? And it, it's it's possible, right? Like if, if that whole argument had been made by, you know, Russia is doing what Nazi Germany did and is, you know, Poland is is the line, we've got to commit troops. Perhaps that could happen. And in that scenario, Australia is Europe for Taiwan, right? Like if, if that if those political calculations get made and we say, now is the time to stop appeasing China, now is the time to stop it, we have to make our stand here, then I can imagine us committing troops. Now, I don't think it's I don't think it's likely. I think I think we will do what we do now, which is sail ships up through the Taiwan Strait. We will, you know, make noise at all the multilateral institution, uh, institutions that we can. Um, and if China invades, we'll do what we've done with Ukraine. Maybe, maybe more, maybe we'll, maybe we'll be involved on the periphery of, you know, uh, more naval operations and that kind of stuff. But no, I, I think you're right. I don't think that we'd do anything um, directly, but, you know, Australia is a country whose n national myth is about providing cannon fodder for the British in World War One, um, you know, Gallipoli is our founding thing that people celebrate every year, just as strongly as they did, you know, fifty years ago, and that really was sending Australian troops to be slaughtered in Turkey. And God knows we had no interest in Turkey. So, you know, it's always there's so many there's so many different variables. But I, I'd put it at a low li likelihood, but I wouldn't say 
a rational geopolitical assessment of our interests would necessarily prevail. If um, if this podcast was was huge, I mean, it's already mildly successful, but if it was hugely successful and I had a huge budget and I could afford to buy music rights and things like that, I would have waltzing Matilda playing in the background as you were talking at the end there. So um, I'll save the listeners from humming it. <laughs> John, before I let you go, talk to us about international intrigue and what you're doing with international intrigue and why all of my listeners should check it out. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, I founded a, a media startup uh, about... Oh, about 10 months ago now, um, with the idea, we've kind of hinted at it through this conversation, but the, the idea is to kind of make geopolitics, global affairs more accessible to people who don't live and breathe the jargony kind of stuff. Um, I think we share a conviction that, the, you know, the last 30 years are a bit of an anomaly in terms of geopolitics not really mattering for most people, most businesses, most, you know, most everyone, um, and that the next 30 years are going to be very different. Uh, so we sort of, I mean, it, the idea of it, well, I should say what it is first. It's a daily newsletter at this point um, that kind of breaks down big issues in geopolitics, in much much in the way that if your listeners are aware of Morning Brew and, and, and those kinds of newsletters, we, we're doing, we like to say we're doing uh, for The Economist what Morning Brew did for The Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Um so that, that's the kind of tagline, you know, a bit more accessible, a bit more enjoyable, a bit more kind of, uh, you know, there's a few jokes, a few memes, a few gifts in there. Um, uh, but, and and the, the founding idea really came from um, just, you know, I was, study, I was studying in London um, a few years ago now and, and studying with folks who will be CEOs, you know, leaders of all different industries. And none of them had a great sense of what was going on in the world and why it mattered. Um, and that's not because they're stupid people. It's because there's not a great amount of content out there that is accessible for people who don't live and breathe this stuff. So, yeah. So our first, yeah, our first product is a daily newsletter where we're closing a seed round at the moment, which will hopefully let us build a couple new products. Um, and and yeah, people can well, sign up if they go to internationalintrigue.io. I should say too. Otherwise, my team will kill me for not plugging. <laughs> yeah, my my marketing team also wants to kill me half the time. That they're doing <laughs> I relate to that on a deep level. Um, well, listeners, I, I I highly recommend it. And John, I hope that you'll I hope that you won't just come on once or twice. I, I hope you'll be a regular Australian voice on the podcast. It was so nice to spend some time with you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Absolutely, I'd love to. I'm a, I'm a regular listener and uh, delighted to be on. Well, whether that's true or not, it's it's nice of you to say. So, <laughs> cheers to that. <laughs> cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.